Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make appropriation for sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. In Renaissance paintings and in, in still lifes, they used to put a memento, a memento mori often in the, in the still life, like a skull somewhere in the corner, or sometimes, sometimes in, a, in, in a very strange perspective so that you could only see the skull if you were standing like right beside the painting instead of dead on. But the idea was to always remember, you know, that everything that exists is tainted or touched with the taint of mortality. And, you know, that's rough. But there, there's some useful things in it. It keeps you awake and it, it keeps you focused if you're careful. But it also does indicate to you, if you think about it, the necessity of having a meaning in your life. Well, good morning, Westside. We are glad that you're here. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Okay. Doing good, awesome. Well, hey, if it's your first, somebody's doing real well, baby. I love it, I love it. If it's your first time here, my name's Jason. I'm the pastor here. Uh, it's our second week in the series, Memento More. And just to catch you up, if it's your first time here, I know it seems a little bit odd, and you're like, doesn't that have to deal with death? And the answer is yes. Um, yes, it does. And just a quick review of why we are doing this. Um, really, the first thing that we said last week is, you can't celebrate the victory of Easter until you have meditated on the problem of death. I think sometimes Christians at Easter sort of muster up the kind of celebration. They're like, yeah, this is a big deal, and, and Jesus rose from the grave, and, and that's awesome, and that's great, and everybody's excited, and, but how does that really affect my everyday life, and what does that mean? Well, before we get to the victory before we get to Resurrection Sunday, we have to stop at Crucifixion Friday. And so this really prepares our hearts and minds for Easter. And, and we did this series last year. It's sort of been a staple for us. And let me tell you, we build up the tension almost to a point where you're like, goodness gracious, man, is there going to be good news coming? Like, does somebody win in the end of this? And so this prepares us for Easter. The second thing is this, um, the phrase memento more comes from your Bible in Genesis chapter 3, it is the Latin translation that essentially means remember death. And so in Genesis 3, God says, from the dust you were created and to the dust you shall return. And the third thing that we said is this, and this is the aim of the entire series. The goal of this series is, is that by remembering our death, we may renew our life. 
that, that when you put death in its proper place, it tends to affect every day of your life. And so I hope that that's doing that for you, that it's sort of maybe putting things in perspective. Maybe you're noticing things that you hadn't noticed before because it's doing it for me. Um, just this past week, I got in the vehicle, normal routine, normal everything that's going on. And I look up in the visor and I see this. And my visor proceeds to remind me that at any moment, this airbag could deploy and kill me at any second. I just saw death, the words death, really. And I'm like, I, I've gotten this vehicle over and over and over again. And now I'm like nervous, like death can happen at any moment. And the reality is, is really this. Um, death dominates our lives. Death dominates our lives. Whether we are thinking about it, whether we are around it, whether, rather we are losing a loved one, whatever it is, death is always there in our life. And the reality is, we talked a little bit last week, is we don't like that. Psalm 90 taught us, it was our prayer today, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom, that actually not ignoring, denying, or distorting death, but rather understanding its proper place gives us a heart of wisdom. But we said that we tend to deny it, distort it, whatever it is. And you know, I think sometimes the reason why we like art, whether it be paintings, whether it be books, whether it be music, and one preacher said that musicians are the prophets of our day because that song just kind of hits you just right or that movie scene gives you that lump in your throat. And the reality is, is because I think they are honest about what we're really thinking about all the time. They tend to say it in a way that connects with us. Um, one of those prophets was the famous author Leo Tolstoy, who wrote um, Crime and Peace, very fame, a war and peace, I'm sorry, the Russian writer, very successful. And he had all of his success, War and Peace, was already uh, considered a classic in his lifetime. The publications, it had to be reprinted multiple times. It's still in a bestseller. And he was toward the end of his life, and success was everywhere. And one day, he writes these words in his journal. Something strange began to happen to me at age 50. I had a wife who loved me and whom I loved. I had a large estate which, without much effort, honestly, on my part, kept increasing. My name was respected. I enjoyed physical strength. And yet, I could not live because of the knowledge of my coming death. The question which brought me to the verge of suicide, sought an answer without which one cannot live. I mean, this guy's being dead honest, literally dead honest. He's saying, I've got all of this success, everything's going on in my life, and I cannot get away from the fact that I'm going to die 
And what's going to happen with my life? What's, and so he says, literally, it's a question that if goes unanswered, somebody actually really doesn't live. Now, enter in Hebrews chapter 2 and the passage that was read to you. Hebrews chapter 2 literally says the exact same thing that Tolstoy is saying. Look in verse 15. The writer says these words, And deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Oh, see, it's what I love about a series like this is that we get to dive into some verses that maybe in your Bible reading plan, you would read that and you would go, whoa, man, there's something there, but I'm already five minutes late. I got to get the kids going and we got to go. But we get to pause and sort of dive into that. And this passage literally says that death brings about a fear in all of humanity that is so strong that it's similar to slavery for humanity. Now, um, the problem with this is I, I can't just drop into Hebrews chapter 2 because we have to teach the Bible. Like, God forbid we learn a little bit about our Bible today. That would be nuts. You're like, how was church? It was great. We learned about the Bible today, right? Um, the book of Hebrews is written to a Jewish audience. Literally, the entire book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is better than everything else in the Old Testament. I mean, at one point, the writer is like, he's better than angels. I mean, it's everything. And if you ever wanted to know, what's the Old Testament sacrifice and what was this? Read Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is better than all of that. And all of that was pointing to Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 2 particularly, the writer gives us four images of Jesus Christ. He literally says, hey, do you want to know who Jesus is? Jesus is like these four things. Um, he says that Jesus is the king who gets off of his throne. How cool is that? He's like, listen, Jesus is king. He's royalty, but he's not like any other king you know. This king got off his throne out of heaven. And he came down to be subject to his creation. Then the second image is this. Jesus is the brother who isn't ashamed of us. Literally in verse 17, he says that, that he called them brothers in that sense. That Jesus relates to us as literally kin, family. The third picture is this. That Jesus is the priest that can help us. Oh, in the Old Testament, you would bring your sins and your prayers to the priest and the priest would sacrifice a lamb and scatter blood everywhere. I'm telling you, man, the Old Testament was like a Quentin Tarantino film. It was wild, okay? Like there's a sacrifice of an animal and then they're lighting incense and as the incense rises in the temple, that's symbolic to your prayers rising. But this priest is actually the priest who can actually take away, this is a good spot for an amen, this priest can actually take away your sin. Amen. It's good, man, it's really good. And then the last image that he gives us is that Jesus is the champion who defeats death for us. 
I mean, these are the four images in Hebrews chapter 2. It's incredible. And what I want to spend time on is obviously that fourth picture, that Jesus is the champion who beats death. So here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the fear of death, the founder of death, and then the finality of death. So the first thing is this, the fear of death. I mean, it's right there in the verse. Um, it says that those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Interesting, that word fear there in your Bible, um, in the original language, it's the word phobos. Phobos. Sound familiar, right? It's in our English word where we get the word phobia from. Phobia means a fear of. And I love the way that this verse is actually constructed because in a way, every other phobia is really about death, right? I mean, like, oh, I have a fear of heights. Well, why? Because I might die, okay, right? Or I have a fear of, of spiders, right? Well, other than them being demonic, right? Um, spiders freak you out. You don't want to get bit and you don't want to die. Isn't it the worst to walk through a spider web? Oh, you might as well set yourself on fire, right? Because <laughs> the spider is on you regardless, okay? I mean, you're just like, oh, I can't, right? Every other phobia behind that particular phobia is underlying a fear of death. And then it says that the fear of death were subject to, here it is, life long. Just meditate on that. Not just slavery. Not kind of like slavery. Life long slavery. That word slavery is the word bondage. There's your image. Bondage. Chains. That literally the phobos, the fear of death, produces people to live with chains in their life. How and why does death make us slaves to fear? Well, the scripture would give a number of images. But I think one of the first reasons is this. Um, we learned it last week. It reminds us of how frail we really are. I mean, Moses last week in Psalm 90 said, um, a person's life at best is 80 years, maybe 70. And guess what it is? Toil and struggle. And all the 80-year-olds said, amen, right? Amen. I mean, literally, what he says is, at best, um, I heard a doctor one time say this phrase, and it stuck with me because it was so illustrative. The doctor said, we forget that we're just bags of jelly walking around. And I'm like, when you think of that, it's like such a good image. We are so frail. The Bible says, um, the next time you see mist or you see smoke and you see it and then it disappears, the Bible says, yeah, 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 that's your life. That's your life. We said last week, the problem is not that we are weak. That's not the problem. The problem is, is we don't realize how weak we really are. It reminds us that we're frail. The second thing is this. It reminds us that all things end at some point. 
relationships, whatever it is, there's a fear there. Will this get taken from me? And this will end. Um, I'll never forget one of the first sort of family vacations that we went. We went to Aunt Bebe's. I've talked about her before down in Florida, and it was an incredible time. And, and we were, you know, the van was loaded up, and it was early in the morning, and we were on our way back. And, and there was a little bit of traffic, but not too bad. And I looked in the rearview mirror, and I saw Roman, and he had big tears in his eye. And I said, what's wrong, Bubba? And he said, he was a young guy, he said, I just don't like it that stuff ends. I just don't like it that stuff ends, right? Amen. There's almost like something inside of us when you stand at that graveside. There's something that cries out in you. Why does this have to end? And I would argue that the Bible would say in the book of Ecclesiastes because God has placed eternity in the heart of every man. And what that means is, is that we have, as Billy Graham would say, this God-shaped hole in our heart, this eternal hole, and we constantly throw temporary things at it to fill it, and it's like a black hole. It never satisfies. It reminds us that things come to an end, and the third one is this. It reminds us all of a final judgment. Um, Romans chapter 1 would be so bold to say that every human being understands that their life is going to a judgment at the end. And what Romans chapter 1 actually says is human beings hate this so much that they have severed their conscience. And in the original language, that's where we get the term lobotomy from. You can look this up. We hate it so much that we know in our heart of hearts that we will give an account for our life that we have severed our brain stem from understanding that. And Romans 1 would say that we suppress the truth of that judgment. But there's moments where it becomes real to us and maybe a window of honesty. Um, this is an image of a victor by the name of Mark Ashton. Mark Ashton was the victor at St. Andrew's in England in 2008, a massive, massive Anglican church. Mark was a great preacher and theologian. And in 2008, the beginning of it, Mark was diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer. Um, Mark had done funerals, and he was a pastor, he was a theologian. And so when he got the diagnosis, he had a biblical framework for how to handle this. He still grieved, um, there were still emotions involved. But what Mark did is, Mark took it as an opportunity to go around talking about death constantly to anybody who would listen. And one day he tells the story that he went to his hairdresser to get a haircut. And there's small talk, and he sits down in the chair, and she says, well, Mark, how are you? And he goes, well, I've been given about 13 months to live. And he said, she went white as a ghost. 
Her eyes got as big as saucers. And he said, for the rest of the haircut, she was so nervous and silent that her hand literally shook with the scissors and everything. He said, it completely shut the conversation down. And he said, that's what he encountered every single time someone would say, hey, Mark, how's it going? And he would go, well, probably going to die this year. They would go, okay, see ya, right? They just started to avoid Mark all the time. And Mark wrote these words. Our age is so devoid of hope in the face of death that the topic has become unmentionable. One New York Times writer says that the word death in society has replaced the word sex for not being able to say it or mention it anymore because of the phobos that surrounds all of it. It's the fear of death, not even just death itself. It's what death has the power over us. The second thing that we need to see in the text is this, the founder of death Listen, this is very important, and I've got to go quickly here, but you need to pay attention to this. Because parents, the odds are your little one is probably going to ask a question someday. Where did death come from? Why does that exist? Right? And then how do we answer this? And I pray and hope that your conviction is, gosh, what does the Bible say? Not I don't want to hurt their little feelings right now, right? And then we come up with crazy sort of statements. Look at what it says right there in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Jesus, likewise partook of the same thing that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death That is the devil. Whoa, right? Whoa, Diablos, right? I mean, like this thing just went south really, really fast. Now, I know some of you might be of the intellectual cloth and you're like, oh, the devil, wow, really? Um, I would just challenge you, number one, to to read through the gospel accounts. And if, if you're infatuated with Jesus, what does Jesus believe about an enemy? And it's very clear throughout the Gospels that there is an enemy. And that enemy is Satan himself. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying, even jump up and look at verse 10. For whom, or actually verse 9, check this out. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned him with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he who from and by whom all things exist, in beginning in many sons to glory, bringing many sons to glory, here it is, should make the founder of their salvation. It's incredible. So what do we need to know about the founder of death? And then we'll see a little bit about the founder of our salvation. Well, the first thing is this, is that Satan is the designer of death. That's something that you have to know. 
That is something that is crucial for you to know. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus compares and contrasts himself and Satan. And he says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says the enemy has one MO, one motive of operation. That's to steal, that's to kill and destroy. That the enemy hates anything that God has created and his kingdom. And Jesus says, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do you see the contrast now of life and death? We see it and we'll see it in a little bit in the Garden of Eden. It was Satan who distorted God's word and says, you won't die. Well, here's the second thing. Satan is the designer of death. Um, but the second thing is this. Disobedience is the doorway to death. So here it is. Here it is, parents. Mommy, daddy, where does death come from? Well, death comes from disobedience. Wait, what? What? Well, yeah, look. Genesis chapter 3. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And then goes on later to say, God is holding out on you. And, and that's why later on in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 6. For the wages of sin, what's wages? It's payment, right? What is the payment of sin? Listen, you got to understand this. Every decision has a consequence. Every decision has a payment to it. What's the payment of sin? The payment of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. So listen, let's just now not get super, super theological. Let's just get practical in every day of your life. In any area of our life that we live in disobedience to God's revealed word, you are inviting death and decay into that area of your life. Whether it be a relationship, whether it be an ideology, whatever it is. Why do you think that the stress and the battle is, I want to live my way, but it's like trying to hold sand in your hands. It just constantly tends to crumble because where there is disobedience, there is death. Because when God says don't, God means don't hurt yourself. God means don't hurt yourself. Satan is the designer of death. Disobedience is the doorway to death. And the third thing is this. Death was never God's design. Hey, hey, real quick, real quick. Some of you theologians out there who have a framework of theology that always starts with the depravity of man, you have an unbiblical structure of theology. You're like getting a little nervous. You're like, whoa, what are we talking about here? The Bible doesn't start with sin. The Bible starts with the goodness of God. That's where the Bible starts. And God said, and it was good. And God said, and it was good. And God said, and it was good. There is a rhythm to creation. 
And we get glimpses of it from now, uh, from every time, uh, now and again. It's like when we stand at a mountain or an ocean or whatever it is, when we feel small, we're reminded of the goodness and kindness of God. It was never a part of his design. And so when we understand the foundation of it, that there is an enemy that is out to only spread death. So what's the hope? Well, it's there in the text. We've seen the fear of it and how it controls us. We've seen the founder of it and how it was never God's design. Oh, man, here's the good news. I just wanted to rush through the entire sermon just to get here, okay? This is the finality of death. I mean, I mean, it's right there in your text. Look at verse 14. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That means he became like us. It's the incarnation. It's what we celebrate every Advent. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you see it? That, listen, oftentimes there's the, the philosophical answer, um, if God is all good, then God can't be all powerful. Because if he's all good, there's suffering in the world. And that means that the suffering is more powerful than God. Or it's vice versa. If God is all powerful, then he's not good because he allows the... These are the same guys who sit around and go, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, right? And all of this type of stuff. Well, listen, I would say this. God revealing his power by doing away with all suffering by the snap of a finger does not show how powerful God... God actually is. That's just, that's like a Greek God. That's like Zeus, like a bolt of lightning. Boom, there's no more suffering anymore. I think what's more powerful is to take suffering and evil, absorb it, and use suffering and evil for good. Oh man, that's much more powerful. And the writer gives us a hint. In verse 10, Jesus is called the founder of our salvation. This is one of the best descriptions of Jesus. J.B. Phillips in his New Testament translation says, uh, from the transliteration to the English, the word founder, it is the closest word, but it doesn't give the right picture. Um, Technically, J.B. Phillips defines it, should make the champion of our salvation. Now that's cool. What is a champion? What is like Michael Phelps when he has all that Mr. T gold on his chest, right? Michael Phelps represents the United States of America, right? He, he fights on behalf or swims. I, I saw a UFC fight last night, sorry. So he swims or even a fighter or a wrestler or anybody, they represent the country that they're from. And the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is just like that. That when, Je- do you know what I thought of? Look, this is just my mind. Just, just walk with me for a little bit here, okay? If Jesus is a champion and a champion fights or performs on behalf of people, I thought of that scene from the movie Troy. Do you guys remember that movie Troy? The, the Brad Pitt movie, ladies? Do you remember the movie Troy? Okay, right? <clears throat> 
there's this scene where Achilles, Brad Pitt, is going to fight Hector. And he stands outside the gates of Troy. And he yells, Hector! Hector! And Hector is getting ready to go out to battle. And everybody knows you don't mess with Achilles. Hector is going to lose this battle. And, and Achilles is yelling, Hector. And they fight as representatives of their nations and countries. And listen, I'm here to tell you today that on that day when Jesus Christ was in the tomb, he was yelling, death. Death, step up to the line because now the battle is once and for all subdued. And Jesus Christ, three days later, becomes the champion of death as a representative for all of humanity. So anybody else who would believe in their heart by faith and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the grave now stands in in that representation of Jesus Christ. But our, but our text, it tells us a particular way that Jesus did it. You know, we learned last week that, that the disciples loved when Jesus like did miracles. Oh, and they loved when he talked about the kingdom of God. Oh, they were like, this is it. This is it. We're going to beat up Rome. We're going to beat up Rome. Kingdom of God's coming, right? Kingdom of God's coming. And then Jesus would say this, um... The king of that kingdom, he must uh, be rejected, he must suffer, he must get beaten, and then he must die. And the disciples were like, pause, wait a second, um, listen, we don't really like the fact that you're talking about death a lot, Jesus, it's scaring the children, okay, right? We would love for you to be big and strong and show power and all of that. Um, I want to weave the tapestry of the story of God for you because do you remember what else happens in Genesis 3? They disobey God and death enters into the world, but there's still the tree of eternal life in the garden. And God says we have to banish Adam and Eve out of the garden because if they eat of the tree of eternal life in their cursed state, they will be cursed forever. So God banishes them in Genesis 3 on the east side of Eden. Do you remember that play with James Dean, East of Eden, right? It's symbolic. And he drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. Now here it is. And he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Like, what is up with this cherubim? Hey, the cherubim in the Bible are bad dudes, okay? They are like ninja angels, okay? So when a cherubim shows up, it's big time. And this guy has got a flaming sword that turns every way. What is this symbolizing? It's symbolizing there is a block to eternal life. And the only way that you can get to eternal life is to go under a sword. 
Now, this became so symbolic for the people of Israel and God's presence and God having to separate himself from his people because of their sin that when Moses gets the instructions in Exodus chapter 26 to build the tabernacle where God's presence will dwell, it says this, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of twined linen and blue and purple scarlet yarns. This was not your grandma's drapes, okay? This thing was heavy. It was a big curtain. And in that curtain, you shall make them with cherubim, skillfully worked in. Literally, what was on the outside of the curtain that led into the presence of God were these cherubim with swords in their hands. Israel saw this constantly all the time. They were reminded 24-7 that death and sin separate us from the very presence of God. But now, enter in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who our text says took on flesh just like us. And in John's gospel, he talks about what happens when Jesus dies. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And once there came out blood and water, what did he just do? He just absorbed The sword, oh my, but that's not it. This will blow your mind. In Matthew, when Jesus dies, it says this, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit and behold, get ready. Matthew's saying, behold, remember the whole story? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, not bottom to top. Bottom to top would symbolize that man could make his way to God. But from top to bottom, that giant curtain that symbolized death and decay and destruction was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that God made his way to man in Christ Jesus. And now there's no more barrier anymore that Jesus is the champion who defeats death for us. This is the good news of the gospel And the big idea today is very simply this. You could see it right from the text. That the death of Christ frees us from the fear of death. There's no more fear anymore. Or as the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this. The sting, the pain of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Oh, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, as the band comes and leads us in a time of response, I am not so naive to know that everybody at some point in this room has felt that sting that death provides. And I almost know what you're saying because I have the same question. You know, we talk about Jesus has beat death. Man, this is good news for us. Um, well, here it is. In the application, we say that Jesus has, has beat death. But like David wrote 
we still live in the valley of the shadow of death. So you can say like, yeah, Pastor Jason, Jesus has beat death, but like death still dominates our lives. How do we live in the here and now? How do I deal with this? How do I have hope and it not just be some future thing? It reminded me. Um, In high school, I was in a lot of the plays and in a play or a musical, you have what's called an intermission, right? And I'll never forget Miss Holmes, like whenever the intermission was going on and we were all taking our breaks and hanging out and all that stuff, Miss Holmes would come by and she would slap her hand and she had a clipboard that had a little light on it. She was a little bitty lady, but she was fiery, man. And she would run and she, and she would go, intermission is almost over. Intermission is almost over. And then she would say this, intermission is almost over. It's time for the final act. And when you look up the Oxford English Dictionary definition, one says a short period of time between the parts of a play or a film. That's good. Oh, man. This is the second definition. Miss Holmes had it right. A short break in a play that leads to the final act. You say, what does this mean about death in the here and now? It is this death for a believer is the intermission until the final act. Mama, don't lose hope. You'll see that baby. Baby, don't lose hope. You'll see that mama. It is just a time right now in the in-between. But the everyday life hope that we have is we have a champion who fought death in our place for our sins and now there's no more barrier to eternal life. Father God, we come before you today desperately needing this hope. God, if the fear of death is removed from us as Christians, then like what can happen to us? The retirement can go away. There can be wars and rumors of wars and whatever it is. The worst thing in the world can happen to us. But at the end of the day, the reality is, is the worst thing happened to you, Jesus, in our place and for our sin. So now we don't have to fight for our identity in conversations. Our job isn't tied up in our identity Our house doesn't represent how successful we are. For I was a sinner condemned. And Jesus Christ died in my place and now offers eternal life. Oh, death, where is your sting? God, give us a humble boldness that allows us to go forth from this place in a world filled with decay knowing that this is just the intermission until the final act when death will be no more. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.